millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and today I want to take a dip into uh, the bigger kind of picture of economic history in the 20th century. I know from time to time I, I do this and we, we kind of uh, kind of step back a bit and look at a kind of a, a global context in a, a given time frame and I want to look at the period 1978 to about 1980 and the advent of neoliberalism. Uh, I've done a few podcasts on this before, but the reason why I keep returning to this is because as far as pivotal moments in economic history go, 78 to 80, uh, perhaps even up to 83, 84, um, can't be um, overstated for its significance. It might even be thought of as a period of uh, economic revolution, um, or certainly a, a revolutionary turning point, as, as David Harvey puts it in his amazing book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, which if you haven't read it and you are interested in um, macroeconomic histories, it's an extremely good one. I'd rate it alongside um, The State We're In by Will Hutton, which uh, was one of those kind of watershed books of the, the 1990s. David Harvey writes, Future historians may well look upon the years 1978 to 1980 as a revolutionary turning point in the world's social and economic history. In 1978, Deng Xiaoping took the first momentous steps towards the liberalisation of a communist-ruled economy in a country that accounted for the fifth of the world's population. The path that Deng defined was to uh, transform China in two decades from a closed backwater to an open centre of capitalist dynamism with sustained growth rates and paralleled in human history. On the other side of the Pacific, in a quite different circumstances, a relatively obscure but now renowned figure named Paul Volcker. I have actually done a podcast on Paul Volcker previously. Um, check it out. Um, took command at the US Federal Reserve in July 1979, where in a few months dramatically changed monetary policy. 
the Fed thereafter took the lead in the fight against inflation, no matter what its consequences, uh, particularly uh, as concerned unemployment. Across the Atlantic, Margaret Thatcher had already been elected Prime Minister of Britain in May 1979, with a mandate to curb trade union power and put an end to the miserable inflationary stagnation that had enveloped the country for the preceding decade. Then, in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected President of the US and armed with geniality and personal charisma, set the US on the course to revitalise its economy by supporting Volcker's moves at the Fed and adding his own particular blend of policies to curb the power of labour, deregulate industry, agriculture and resource extraction and liberate the powers of finance, both internally and on the world stage. From these several epicentres, Revolutionary impulses seemingly spread and reverberated to remake the world around us in a totally different image. So it's interesting from what David Harvey is saying there that um, there were diverse revolutionary epicenters. And if you also consider the neoliberal laboratory in the early 1970s of Pinochet's Chile, uh, um, the beginnings of neoliberalism are extremely diverse from uh, post-Maoist China to uh, Margaret Thatcher. And throughout the 80s and 90s, of course, neoliberalism uh, features in most of the the world's economies. It uh, spreads uh, far more effectively than communism had done uh, in the uh, early 20th century. The other point that's interesting here is some of the defining features of neoliberalism. And if you want to um, try to sum it up, you know, the, the new, uh, the reinvention of classic liberal economics. Well, classic liberal economics, neoliberalism incorporates some of their, um, some aspects of classic neo, uh, of liberal economics, um, particularly uh, the workings of free markets. The um, aspects of neoliberalism um, that are important are, um, uh, then importantly, are de- were defined in the changes in Reagan's America and Thatcher's Britain, were the breaking of organised labour and the deregulation, the reduction in government control over industry, but more importantly, over finance, and David Harvey adds here um, agriculture and resource extraction. So ultimately what this means is that neoliberalism is an enormous transition of power from labour to capital. And this seemingly upended much of the post-war period where a commitment to full employment had existed in Britain, in America and in much of the uh, Europe of the social democratic moment, as as defined by Tony Judd in his book Post-War. The power of labour, the relative power of labour, and it wasn't uh, an enormous power, had come uh, under sustained intellectual and journalistic assault uh, throughout the uh, post-war era, the 50s, 60s, and particularly uh, the 70s, in Britain and America, And by the 1970s, um, a a variety uh, of right-wing think tanks, such as the Institute for Economic Affairs in Britain, 
were capable of moving uh, neoliberal ideas, the ideas of economists such as Friedrich von Hayek and Milton Friedman, from the unacceptable fringes of economic thought uh, that had um, been seen as the kind of the, um, the preserve of, of cranks and crackpots, right to the centre ground of uh, economics, the centre ground of economic debate. This was possible because the material conditions for this were present. The uh, inflation of the 1970s um, and the uh, subsequent union unrest showed that uh, things like uh, full employment policies or policies that allowed for a certain amount of inflation in return for other favourable economic circumstances, such as low levels of unemployment, that these were not working by the mid-1970s. Not only do you get rising unemployment, uh, rising inflation, but by 1976, uh, unemployment in Great Britain tops the one million mark. Now, by the early 1980s, when uh, unemployment had topped the three million mark, something that had never happened during the Great Depression of the 1930s, the um, problems of the 1970s seem relatively trivial, but what the 1970s and the in Britain, the last uh, uh, year of the 1970s, and the, the winter of uh, 1978 to 1979, um, were showed to the British public was that trade union power was um, had had got radically out of hand. The power of the, the unions seemed to have to bring the country to a standstill with strikes was um, no doubt formidable at that uh, point in time. And it was, you know, it must be remembered that it was a Labour, not a Conservative government, that was brought down by the strikes. And it was, this was a um, an increasingly centre-right Labour government that under Callaghan and Healy had begun to adopt many of the basic precepts of neoliberal economics long before Margaret Thatcher had uh, arrived in Downing Street. But it was, the unions um, brought uh, the uh, government to its knees and an election in May 1979 uh, ended a um, period in British history that had begun in 1945 with the advent of Margaret Thatcher and the gradual destruction of uh, consensus politics. Some might argue that that uh, consensus had begun to break down from the 1960s onwards. Anyway, the point being that um, when Margaret Thatcher stepped into 10 Downing Street, she stepped into 10 Downing Street with a mandate to break the power of organised labour, to uh, deal a uh, death blow to union power. She didn't really campaign on uh, privatisation. That wasn't a term that was used by her at the time. Um, she campaigned on a low uh, level of denationalisation, but that wasn't one of her key aims. The idea that um, there was a manifesto in 1979 full of arguments about uh, creating uh, more uh, ref um, more responsive and uh, labour markets, um, deregulating finance and letting the city off the loose, that didn't really exist at that point. At that point, Margaret Thatcher was an adherent, even by 1975, 
Um, she was uh, an adherent of uh, Friedrich von Hayek. Um, and when asked in 1975, um, what does the Conservative Party believe? Apocryphally, she waved a copy of von Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, and said, this is what we believe. Von Hayek is an interesting character in this entire story, and I have devoted quite a few podcasts to him previously, so I don't want to kind of go on at length about him here. But von Hayek um, and his um, uh, contemporaries who had fled Austria under the right-wing dictator uh, Adolphus, and then uh, following that they had um, been unable to return after the Anschluss, um, von Hayek found a home in Britain and from the 30s and the 40s onwards began to popularise uh, the idea that um, all states were inherently tyrannical um, and that state power itself, be it communist or fascist or even social democratic, was uh, an in, uh, inherently at odds with individual freedom and that the only force that was capable of make of a having some kind of uh, objective truth or being able to perceive some kind of objective truth was um, the force of the market and the way he thought of it was like this he said, well, uh, one individual on their own cannot really understand the world because their, their experience is subjective. They only see what they see. Um, a state, um, a, a government with its branches of judiciary and police and civil service and all that, again, is unable uh, to um, accurately uh, and um, objectively understand the world because it is a, a, an institution that relies on its, its own power. But the, uh, the organisation of human beings that is best able to um, be you know, almost like a collective intelligence, a greater intelligence, is the market. If everyone decides that the maximum they'll pay for a cup of coffee is £1.50, then that is a, you know, an objective truth about the worth of, of, that, uh, of that good or service. And therefore, getting in the way of markets, allowing um, doing anything to interfere with um, the communication of price signals and the uh, workings of uh, labour markets through labour prices and all the rest, if anybody tampers with markets... They're effectively taking away individual freedoms and the growth of the state is the greatest threat to individual freedom. That's really the road to serfdom kind of condensed, but you, you, you get the idea. Margaret Thatcher is a funny kind of neoliberal to begin with, really, in that um, she believed quite emphatically in state power in certain regards. Um, she believed in the return to traditional values and um, uh, the rule of law. The um, 1970s had been not only a period of union and rest, but also of kind of IRA terrorism. And there had been an overall uh, belief in Britain that the rule of law um, and uh, the and respect for one's elders and um, all these sorts of things were was really in decline. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So her appeal was in uh, the destruction of uh, organised labour, or at least the reduction of union power, and a, a rather more emotional appeal to a return to uh, a Britain that seemed to have evaporated or have, have been lost. Very little of what she argued at that time, or, or articulated to the public, and even less in terms of what the public actually absorbed uh, and embraced, was the unleashing of market forces and the uh, belief and faith in market fundamentalism. That was um, really part two of Thatcherism uh, from uh, 1984 onwards. One fundamental difference between Chinese neoliberalism and uh, Anglo-American neoliberalism is that Anglo-American neoliberalism, the Thatcher-Reaganite consensus, was really dressed up in the language of individual freedom. Deng Xiaoping was not discussing uh, any such thing, and the idea of extending notions of, particularly uh, European Enlightenment notions of individual freedom to China, was not on his uh, agenda whatsoever. Put simply, uh, markets were a way of achieving prosperity, and prosperity could be thought of as socialism. Deng famously made the point that poverty was not socialism, and that whatever Mao had brought about during the Cultural Revolution, uh, the chaos and the violence and the destruction of property and the total disruption of everyday life and the hunger and, in some cases, starvation that went with it, whatever you could call that, it did not achieve socialism. It simply achieved uh, poverty and chaos. Therefore, the um, embrace of markets and the um, dramatic extension 
of um, private ownership didn't go hand in hand with notions of uh, freedom and liberty, and it certainly didn't go hand in hand with any kind of reduction in state power. One of the great ironies of the uh, Reagan and Thatcher era is that the state did not shrink in either case. The state grew. And the uh, ideas proposed by Hayek didn't really come to fruition. Certainly, nationalised industries in Great Britain were sold and uh, exposed to market forces to some extent. And the uh, role of the state dramatically transformed, but it didn't shrink. One possible reason for that could be uh, looking at the development of capitalism from the late 17th century onwards. At each moment where private ownership has expanded in uh, Britain, the state has created the means for that to happen. When private ownership of common land uh, was established, there had to be the kind of legal infrastructure and the per- policing um, for for that to uh, for that to occur. So markets don't uh, emerge in the absence of state power. Um, markets emerge very often because of state power, and that um, the during the nineteen eighties, a period of intense social conflict the uh, role of the police, uh, the judiciary, um, social services and aspects of the welfare state are key in creating the um, conditions uh, amongst the labour force, uh, the economy and the society uh, at large to allow markets to operate as freely as possible. The kinds of uh, economic and social uh, change and the pace of that change, very rarely do these things uh, happen without the aid of state power. One of the key reasons for neoliberalism in China was that Deng Xiaoping was acutely aware of the economic successes of Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea and other Asian tigers, and he he, uh, felt that China was surrounded by these uh, nations that had large cash surpluses. They were uh, economies that were successfully exporting to uh, to Europe and to America, and that economies with cash to spend um, and surpluses of it need to invest, and the uh, eventuality would be that they would find ways to invest in China, to set up factories, and to extract wealth from China. Far better, thought Deng, was to create their special enterprise zones and to attract overseas investment on Chinese terms. So what that tells us about Chinese neoliberalism is that it emerges within the context of a wider Asian rejuvenation. In the uh, amazing book Forgotten Wars um, by uh, Tim Harper and Christopher Bailey, they argue that the um, war in Asia, the Second World War in Asia, 
continues until the uh, throughout the 1940s and into um, the 1950s and is in the uh, Asia is a period of immense unrest all the way through the 60s and 70s and it's really the economic renaissance of Japan and Japan is uh, a uh, eventually a neoliberal state uh, emerging that finally brings uh, some kind of stability to Asia. And this would make sense, having uh, an, an economic surplus state uh, in um, a particular region acts as almost a kind of a linchpin to the economy, much as Germany had done, uh, West Germany had done in Western Europe uh, from the, 50s, uh, the mid-50s onwards. And perhaps neoliberalism itself was a, a doctrine that could be reasonably articulated and propagated in a period of scientific and economic advancement in the second half of the 20th century. It is an idea that, uh, that uh, essentially um, could be advanced when the material conditions for individual um, self um, uh, self propagation and advancement were there. David Harvey says neoliberalism is, in the first instance, a theory of political and economic practices that proposes that human well-being can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets, and free trade. All the kinds of things you need powerful governments for, by the way. The role of the state is to create and preserve an institutional framework appropriate to such practices. The state has to guarantee, for example, the quality and integrity of money. It must also set up those military defence, political and legal structures and functions required to secure private property rights and to guarantee, by force if need be, the proper functioning of markets. Furthermore, if markets do not exist in areas such as land, water, education, healthcare, social security or environmental pollution, then they must be created by state action if necessary. But beyond these tasks, the state should not venture. State interventions in markets, once created, must be kept to a bare minimum because, according to the theory, the state cannot possibly possess enough information to second-guess market signals and because the powerful interest groups... Um, will inevitably distort and bias state interventions, particularly in democracies, for their own benefit. Now, 2008 really is the postscript to all of this. This is the bookend at the um, end of the, the neoliberal era. Um, high neoliberalism, you might say, lasted from 1989 to 2008, following the fall of communism and the introduction of neoliberal capitalism catastrophic effects into Russia, which is uh, something I want to tackle in great depth um, later on. Tony Judd, in his book Ill Fares the Land, famously said that 1989 uh, was a great missed opportunity, much as uh, 1918 and the Treaty of Versailles had been, and perhaps had there been some kind of international settlement between the uh, victorious West and the uh, former communist world, uh, things might be considerably better than they are now. The uh, 2008 um, was that watershed moment when the deregulation of finance 
its chickens came home to roost. One might say that from 2008 to 2017 we have uh, existed in a kind of um, post-ideological wasteland. Economically speaking, there is no defining ideology that makes any sense uh, anymore, that the idea that markets can do pretty much everything and we should simply trust them has gone out of the window for most people. An idea that uh, a generation ago was hegemonic, uh, i.e. believed as absolute common sense, is now one that is uh, rejected uh, in ever greater numbers. The only problem being, of course, that a, a new economic doctrine has yet to come and replace it. That leads us to the old Gramscian refrain about, and I paraphrase here, about how when one economic system has died and another is yet to, re to be born, in the middle exists a morbid symptom. And the growth of um, fascistic nationalisms around the world, from uh, Trump in America to Viktor Orban, in Hungary to Narendra Modi in India and to the vast plethora of um, right-wing Brexiteers that we uh, have to endure here in Great Britain uh, is, sim is evidence that this uh, Gramscian idea may well hold water. Um, Neoliberalism intellectually was the product of uh, a uh, reaction to to the totalitarianisms of the 20th century and has created perhaps not totalitarianisms but authoritarian states in their own right dedicated to the protection of these rather precious and fragile markets and when the markets themselves uh, cease to function because of huge distortions, huge disparities in market power um, meaning that obviously there are Winners and winners and losers within uh, market economies, the um, system starts to fragment and has to be based on increasing levels of debt. One of the key aspects of neoliberalism in uh, Britain and America, particularly, is the destruction of labour uh, of labour uh, power, of union power meant that um, there was little scope for wage bargaining and that meant that low-wage economies had to have increasing levels of debt and increasing levels of financial liberalisation, the ability to lend money to people who had never been lent money previously um, it, to keep the system going through consumer spending. And hey presto, um, we reach um, levels of debt that are unserviceable. Paul Mason recently wrote that debt was really kind of like a, a letter to the future that one normally um, allows larger quantities of debt to accumulate on the understanding that future earnings and future GDP will, uh, will, will pay it back. Unfortunately, the future... Um, that we, we are facing in the 21st century, partly due to the advent of the internet, AI and new technologies, is going to be one of low growth and low GDP. So how we pay that one back is anyone's guess. Anyway, we're starting to look into the future here and not the past, so that rather starts to 
fray at the edges of what the Explaining History podcast is meant to do. But I've gone on for long enough, so this is a kind of a, an, an extra Christmas treat, a half-hour podcast instead of a 25-minute one. Um, I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. I'm going to sign off for the year now. Thanks so much for everyone who's listened and who's contributed, who's messaged me and who's been part of Explaining History this year. We've really grown. I'm very, very grateful and I hope you all have uh, a happy Christmas and a restful New Year.